He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I won't take the time, but I would encourage you to go to Isaiah chapter 53. And there you will see an Old Testament prophecy written 700 years before Christ that spells out these very things. That He died for our sins. The story continues in John chapter 19, verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Judean Passover, Good Friday is what we would call it, that the body should not remain on the crosses on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, that is the regular Sabbath, coupled with the fact that the Passover fell on the Sabbath, made this an exceedingly important day. The Jews therefore asked Pilate that their legs the legs of the ones being crucified, including Jesus and the two criminals, that they might be broken. And Roman policy usually was to respect the customs of their subject nations. And so they say that they might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now in the Old Testament law, it talks about the fact that someone who has been hung on a tree, that his body should not hang overnight. And this is why they went to Pilate asking that his legs be broken to bring about a quick death so that the criminals and Jesus could be removed and buried before sunset. I can't fathom the depths of the hypocrisy here. Here are the Jews, Jewish leaders, steeped in the Old Testament. They've just executed the murder of the Son of God and they're worried and concerned about the law of God. Beloved, we need to beware of hypocrisy. There seems to be no depths, no limit to what man can stoop to in his hypocrisy, including our own. In John chapter 19, the story continues in verses 32 and 33. The soldiers did what they were requested to do. Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now these are hardened Roman soldiers. They knew death when they saw it. They looked up and they saw that Jesus was dead and that his legs didn't need to be broken. Then we read that one of the soldiers, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John is simply saying, I saw this with my own eyes and you can count on what I'm telling you. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones should be broken. And this is recorded in Exodus and Numbers when it talked about the, the Passover sacrifice, the Passover lamb, that none of the bones of the lamb were to be broken. And again it says in the scripture, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And that's taken from Zechariah chapter 12.10. The point is, is, that, is that he died according to the scriptures. But what the scriptures are underlining is one central fact, and that is that he died. He died. He really died. As the soldiers placed the spear into the skin that penetrated into the body of Jesus, blood and water came out together, which according to some medical specialists would have indicated a, a ruptured heart. You might say Jesus died of a broken heart. The blood clearly witnessed to his death. 
and highlighted that the truth that indeed a blood sacrifice had been offered because God had said without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins there's no removal of sin there's no forgiveness of sin blood had to be shed and his blood was shed he died the water perhaps indicates his humanity that it was clean and pure a perfect and sinless life which made him the perfect sacrifice it is indeed good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture but perhaps the gospel writers were reading more into prophecy or more prophecy into the events than history maybe Jesus really didn't die on the cross but as one theory has it that perhaps he just swooned or fainted and later was revived in a cool tomb and this takes us to the second part of the gospel and that is that he was buried that he was buried in verse 38 we read after this that is after being observed and pierced by experienced Roman soldiers who knew death and who declared him dead Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who is this fellow? In the New Testament, we come to know him as a wealthy man a prominent member of the Sanhedrin which had sentenced Jesus to death. He was a good and just man. However, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus who up to this point had pretty much lacked the courage of his convictions. You know disciples like that? Although he didn't go along with the decision to put Christ to death, like many, he was afraid to come out of the closet and declare himself a follower, a disciple of Jesus. He was afraid of what his peers would think and of what they might do to him and his family. But now after such an injustice, after seeing Jesus dying, an innocent man dying, he determined to act. And so he boldly approached Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, and asked for the body of Jesus, that he might take him away and give him a proper burial. Now, in cases of crucifixion, the Romans generally left the, the corpses rotting on the cross. Subject to the vultures who would pick away at the flesh of the rotting corpses. And this was attempted to be a shame and a deterrent to others that might have contempt for Roman law. In contrast, the Jews buried even people who were crucified. And the Romans normally went along with their customs. However, even the Jews would bury such people as criminals, including Jesus. They would bury him not in a family tomb where he might desecrate or where they might desecrate decent people, but they would bury these criminals in un the other undesirables in tombs that had been set aside for criminals and undesirables. Now that's probably what the Jews had in mind when they asked Pilate to break the legs of the criminals 
including Jesus. But then they would take those bodies down and haul them off to one of those tombs where they would be tossed into a, a tomb of criminals. Joseph, however, had something else in mind for Jesus. He would bury him in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, according to Matthew's account. It was an act that took courage in view of the fact that Jesus had been accused of subversive activities by both the Jews and the Romans. It's interesting that even in the matter of where Jesus was buried, the scriptures, 700 years before, spoke out exactly what was going to happen. Notice these verses in Isaiah 53, And they made his grave with the wicked. They had intended to bury him as a common criminal, but with the rich at his death. But he ended up being buried with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Spelled out perfectly. The Jews intended to dump him into a common grave for criminals. Joseph of Arimathea came along and says, No, I want him to have a proper burial. Scripture foretold it 700 years before. Friends, we can have confidence in this book. We're not talking here about dreams and wishes and twinkle, twinkle, little star, I wish upon you and get what I want. We're talking about evidence. Joseph, however, was not alone in his devotion to Jesus. We read that Nicodemus, a Pharisee who had come to Jesus by night in John 3, who probably became a believer and a secret disciple like Joseph, he brought along to Joseph, he came to the to the site where Jesus had been crucified if he was not there already and he helped Joseph take the body down from the cross and he brought with him the Bible says a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 65 to 75 pounds this was an extraordinary amount of very expensive burial substances and in the custom of the Jews what Jesus received from Joseph and Nicodemus was a burial fitting for a king. And you can read how they buried kings in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 14. Now the Egyptians used myrrh in the process of embalming. The Jews, however, did not embalm a body like the Egyptians who would remove the organs. Instead, they would turn myrrh, they would crush it into a powder, they would combine it with aloes, and they would form a powder that would be more of a perfume that would be inserted in the folds of the wrappings. They would take linen and they would literally wrap the body, each member of the body, the legs and the arms and then the torso and the, everything except the head. And eventually they would wrap the head, but at first they wouldn't. And in each fold around, each time they would go around and around and around the body, the torso, the arms, whatever, they would be laying this substance, this very expensive substance in their culture in each fold. And the purpose, of course, of the powders was to overcome the, the smell of putrefaction of the flesh. This was the process followed by Joseph and Nicodemus. Details. Read it. Verse 40. Chapter 19. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. We read in another account that it was Joseph. The tomb belonged to Joseph. 
The preparation of the body of Jesus for burial was hastened by the setting sun. Because after sunset on Good Friday, Passover began. And when Passover began, all work ended and the preparations, the process of preparing the body of Jesus would have to end and be picked up again on the first day of the week. It seems interesting that some of the women had followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb and watched what they were doing and the intention I think in their mind was as we saw as we would see in some of the other accounts was to come back on the morning of Easter Sunday at that time and to complete the finer touches uh, the processes of anointing than preparing the body of Jesus because time was running out for Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and all they could do is get the basic job done. The finer touches would have to be left to Sunday morning. And that explains why they were on the way to the tomb on Sunday morning when they saw that Jesus had risen. Now, we may, now you may be thinking, Arch, do we need all this information? There's so much detail here. I want you to take a step back from this now, from all the information about the burial of Jesus, and let's return to our original question. Why is this information about the burial of Jesus good news? Why is it good news? How is preparing the body of Jesus for burial and placing that body in an expensive tomb that was secured by a huge storm and guarded, stone and guarded by Roman guards, soldiers, why was that good news? It sounds rather morbid to me and I'm sure it does to you to some extent. Unpleasant information, yes. Except when it becomes the backdrop for the resurrection. Think about it. In this story, there's nothing really extraordinary. No miraculous antidotes. No highly religious overtones. Just very devoted people going about a very basic but important fundamental chore. A chore that was chock full of details. And the only thing you walk away with from all these details is this. Jesus really was dead. He really did die. And his burial testifies to the reality of his death. Hardened Roman soldiers conclude he was dead. A pierced side, blood and water coming out. An eyewitness account proves he was dead. Two religious heavies Risking all? Clearly they wouldn't have done it. They hadn't thought he was dead. A rich man's tomb? A body wrapped and prepared carefully? Another rich man's preparations within the preparation? And here you can picture these two men. Here they are on the cross and they're lowering down the body of Jesus and it's limp. There's no life in it. The body is dead. Jesus commended His Spirit into the presence of the Father, into the hands of the Father. His body was limp. It was lifeless. And they're handling that body with the thought of preparing it for burial, and then they buried it in a tomb. And all of that says to us, that body was dead. The burial of Jesus is good news for two reasons. 
First, it means Jesus really did die for our sin. And second, it means the resurrection was indeed a resurrection. It wasn't a resuscitation or a restoration or a revival or a recovery. It was a resurrection. Which takes us to the next chapter of John. Chapter 20. And the next part of the Gospel. The good news that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. According to the other Gospels, there was an earthquake. None of them really say exactly when Jesus rose from the dead. But it says there was an earthquake and perhaps it was at that moment. But nevertheless, we read that after the earthquake, an angel descended and rolled the huge stone away from the tomb. Why? To let Jesus out? No! To let others look in and see He's not there. The burial preparations have settled. The covering over the head has been folded to the side. He's not there. All of the careful details and planning to bury Him... They're all in place, but He's not there. Now on the first day of the week, it says in John chapter 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, she didn't even stop to check it out. She just assumed that the Jews or the Romans or grave robbers had come and taken the body away. And then she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple John and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. That's John. John was the methodical one, you know, the careful one who tended to think things out. He probably was thinking, you know, if he entered the tomb, he would be defiled for seven days according to Old Testament law. And so he refrained from going in. But Peter, he's my kind of guy. Peter says, I'm going in. And he followed, and he, following him, went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, he went in also, finally after he saw Peter in there, looking at everything and seeing that it hadn't been disturbed. He went in. And you know what it says? He went in and he saw also and he believed. And he believed. At that moment, John believed in the resurrection. That's what he's speaking about here. He believed that Jesus is risen. But his belief was based on the evidence. Circumstantial evidence. He hadn't come to the real evidence yet. Verse 9, For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. They went away thinking about these things. The burial of Jesus with all of its careful preparations provided the perfect backdrop for Peter and John to come to the conclusion that Jesus is risen. The undisturbed linens, the folded head covering, did not point to Romans or Jews or to robbers who wouldn't have left behind expensive linens and spices. The Romans wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap the body of Jesus. 
like CSIs, they were coming to the conclusion, He is risen. He is risen. Jesus is alive. However, their faith was based on the evidence. And when evidence is all we have, when all we have is what we can see and touch and feel, we're going to second-guess ourselves. you ever second-guess yourself? Did I really see that? Did I really hear that? Did I really think that? Was I out of my mind? You know how our mind plays games with us? I'm sure that was their problem. They went back home and they're thinking, you know, did we really see it? Did we really come to the right conclusion? You see, a faith that's based just on evidence alone will be up and down and all over the place. But a faith that will last and be steady is a faith that's grounded in the Word of God. And that was the one thing they had not yet come to appreciate is what the Scripture had foretold thousands of years before, hundreds of years before, that Jesus would indeed rise from the dead. Even Jesus Himself in His ministry over and over again told them about His resurrection and they still didn't get it. It was foretold in their own Old Testament that the Holy One would not suffer corruption. Speaking of, his, of Himself in a grave. That He would be raised before the body could actually begin the process of decomposing. They would be on an emotional, spiritual, and intellectual roller coaster over the next few hours. Up and down. Did it happen or didn't it? That is, until Jesus appeared in their midst. But it was not for them to see Jesus first. We read in verse 11, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. Mary evidently had followed them back to the tomb, watched as they left, and then she continued weeping there. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She wanted to see for herself what was going on. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Evidently his appearance had changed. In keeping with the ageless properties of the resurrection body, people say to me, What am I going to look like in heaven? There will be things that will make it clear you look like you, and I look like me. But there won't be any age. It will be ageless. You say, What's that like? I don't have a clue because I can't think apart from it. But somehow, Jesus had that ageless appearance. Which at first would catch a person by surprise as to who is this person. But then as you look closer, you see distinguishing characteristics. That say, Aha, that's Jesus. Those marks, those distinguishing characteristics had not yet come to her. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be a gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've taken him away... And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not as yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and go to my, to my God and to your God. And in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told his disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews 
The disciples were probably mauling over all that they'd been seeing and hearing. There had been others that had seen Jesus that day besides Mary. They themselves had seen the evidence of the, of the linens laying there undisturbed. And they were mauling all this over and wondering about it and saying, Is it true? Did he really rise? I think he did. We're not sure. And then all of a sudden, Jesus came and stood in their midst. They'd locked the doors, by the way, because of the Jews, because they knew that the Jews had circulated a story that they'd stolen the body, so obviously they were on the hunt, or people were on the hunt for them. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. He told them about his peace had overcome the world, and he was telling them now, Don't let this shake you. Peace. Furthermore, they deserted him, but he didn't have it in for them. His parting words, or his first words to them were peace. Shalom alakam. We hear the word shalom. Those are the first words they heard from the lips of Jesus. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He is risen. He is risen. The resurrection is a fact. And it's rooted in evidence. It's rooted in scripture. For those who are in tune with the scriptures, that is the evidence that gives it real weight. But for those that haven't come to a place where they know the scriptures, consider the evidence. We don't have strange people here doing strange things. We don't have a, a story here with, that's mystical, with religious... With halos around their head, or ghosts, or furniture moving about inside the room where they were. This isn't that kind of story. This isn't fantasy. We see just simple, ordinary people like you and I trying to deal with an extraordinary event that surpasses human comprehension, which is the fact that they saw him die, they buried him, and they knew he was dead, and now he stands in front of them and says, Check out my side. See the wounds? See the holes in my hand? It's me. And yes, this body that I have now is a resurrection body. It's different. It's a body that will never die. But it's nevertheless a body and it's real. Give me some food. Let me eat it for you and I'll show you it's real. And he ate with them. They touched him. They hugged him. They knew it was real. He lives. So what? You always get someone that says, so what? Because he lives, like Mary Magdalene, I know his words are true. That what he taught me is true. That what he promised me is true. That what he claimed is true. I know his teaching, which I call my faith. That what's the the content of what I believe. I know it's true because he lives. And I know it's true because in the context of history, in space and time, I am convinced that He lives because of the resurrection. Because He lives. Secondly, I know I've been saved from my sins. First, I know His words are true. Secondly, I know I've been saved from my sins because that is what He came to accomplish. And His resurrection 
proves that he accomplished it. I've been forgiven because the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. Every day I commit sins like you do. And I go back to the Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I can have an ongoing relationship with my Heavenly Father even when I've sinned because of the blood of Jesus. I know I've been redeemed and set free to live a life to the fullest because Jesus paid the price of my redemption. I'm free. And the first day of my... The very day that I'm living is the first day of the rest of a life that is going to be full and exciting. No matter how old I get, it's a life that will never end. And I know I have a right standing before a just and holy God. It says, by His own blood. He paid the price of my redemption by His precious blood. These are the great teachings of the Bible which encourage me, which have encouraged you. But they're all rooted in the resurrection. Like Paul writes in Romans 4, he says, we who, Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Justification is that huge term in Scripture that describes our, the work of salvation in bringing us into a right relationship with God. Thirdly, because He lives, I know He is the Son of God. I know He's the Son of God. Thomas realized that and we didn't have time to get to that this morning. But Thomas would basically say to the other disciples when they read, he wasn't there on the night that he showed up showing himself to his ten disciples and they went and told Thomas when they saw him, hey man, we saw the Lord, you won't believe it. He's alive, he's really alive and it's real, it's a real body. And they say, and Thomas is thinking, you guys have seen a ghost. And unless I put my hands in his side and feel those prints, I'm not going to believe and Jesus shows up and he and shows says, Thomas, here, touch me. And Thomas, before he even touches him, says, my Lord and my God. Clearly the resurrection makes it clear that Jesus is none other than the Son of God. And I don't mean a lesser God than the Father. I mean someone who shares in the very nature of the Father. That's what this is all about. Many people think he was a great preacher, a reformer a problem solver, a marriage counselor, a healer, a miracle worker. Those are the things we think of when we think of Jesus today. But the Bible teaches us that He's the Son of God. And the resurrection declares that. As Paul said, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Romans 1. And lastly, because He lives, I can face tomorrow. A number of years ago, I had a spot on my back that turned out to be melanoma cancer. It was level 2. And it was a little iffy at mo for, for a short time, maybe a week or so, not knowing what the doctors were going to uncover about whether it had gotten into the lymph nodes. And I recall thinking about death and the fact that I could die, even as a, at that time a young man. And I recall coming back to the resurrection. Because He lives, He's promised that I will live as well. And even if I die, even if my body dies, I will never forget what He said to Martha. He said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in Me, though He were dead, yet shall He live. And He backed that statement up with His own resurrection. The Apostle Paul talked about Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection. 
implying that more fruit is coming. And you know I'm looking at the fruit. Here it is out here. If the Lord doesn't return in our lifetime, every one of us in this building will one day die. But if we believed in Jesus, we're going to be fruit that's going to be brought up out of the grave. That's our hope. Last week we looked at undeserved suffering. And it breaks your heart to see people who are good people suffering undeservedly. And we know many people that suffer undeservedly. But God's ultimate answer to human suffering is not an explanation as to why we suffer, but a hope. A hope that the final chapter of our life has not yet been written and we may suffer for 30 or 40 or 50 years. We may die early. But the final chapter has not yet been written for our life. It will be written for all eternity. And the longer that chapter goes, the less important this 30 years or 40 years or 70 years or 100 years that we have on this earth is going to be. Because that chapter will never end. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow and so can you. Let's pray. Father, help us to take away from the teaching this morning that which would encourage us, help us to live the kind of lives and to enjoy life as you want us to enjoy it. To be at peace. To be glad and, and excited about life and about the potential that we have. To say and do things that have eternal significance. Oh, Father, we thank you for this, our hope. And we thank you that because our Savior lives, we can indeed face tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we ask you to stand, please? Pull your out to your hymnals and go to 213, Because He Lives. Let's do verses 1 and 2, please. God sent His Son.